in a lot of kids' books. So just with the ages that the girls are, we read a lot of books. Evie can read some on her own. Ada's trying to read some on her own, and then Laurel's just soaking it all in. But we have a, a whole library just on our own of kids' books. And i got to get my slide to the right one. We have our own library of kids' books, so many of them. And then when we exhaust those, we go to the local library, and we go with big bags, and we come home with enormous bags full of books, go through all of those, and then go raid the library again. So we read a lot of books. And you realize after a little while that creativity within kids' books only goes so far. And you start to read one of those books, and you get partway through, and you say, wait a minute, I feel like I've read this before. There's only so far that the creativity in kids' books can go. But we're going to look at 1 John this morning, and we might even start to get the sense as we work through this, this letter that I think we've read this before. I feel like we've already heard some of this because it's the same author as the Gospel of John. So we've heard Pastor Mark preaching through the Gospel of John. So same writer, Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then Revelation were all written by John, the disciple of Jesus. So he carries a lot of themes over from the Gospel of John to then what we see in 1 John. One major difference, though, that we see, though, is the purpose of those letters. So John 20, 31 says this, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's a purpose statement for the book of John, for the gospel of John, that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So salvation, that's his goal of writing this, that we might know Jesus. But when he writes 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So this is salvation versus sanctification. The gospel of John is that we might know Jesus. We might come to know him as our Savior. We might be saved as a result of knowing who Jesus is. First John is written then that we might uh, have that assurance of our salvation. We've trusted in him. We've heard his word. We've accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior for the forgiveness of our sins. And now we have assurance of that, sanctification. We're growing in our relationship with him, our fellowship with him. So there's the difference between why John is writing, salvation versus sanctification. But he carries a whole lot of themes over from the gospel of John to now this letter of 1 John. So we're going to see that, and we're going to feel in some ways like we've read this before. I feel like we've already heard this. Well, it's because he's carrying those themes over from what he's already written. And we're going to hear some things that Pastor Mark's already talked through, and in some ways we might even get just a little bit ahead of where Pastor Mark is in John, because now we get to see the other side of where this letter has gone to after the Gospel of John's already been written and passed on. But a little bit of background of the letter for us. So one thought is that John's writing this from Ephesus. So he's writing this letter to churches that are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. As this young church would be growing, the churches would have been spreading. And one thought is that he's in Ephesus writing this letter somewhere around the year AD 90. So maybe, uh, you know, give or take a year or two around that time frame, but that's, scholars believe, somewhere around A.D. 90. The Roman emperor at the time is Domitian, and he's trying to bring the Roman Empire back to the cult worship and the ro old Roman way of worship that had been before him. He's trying to bring back that system of religion. 
And as he's bringing back that system of religion, that starts to see persecution then of Jews and Christians because the Jewish faith, Judaism, and Christianity especially, doesn't fit in with that Roman way of worship, that Roman religion. So there's persecution that starts. And within that persecution then, as is the case to the local church anywhere that they are, there's this false teaching and this... uh, chance for the church to kind of sway and move away from the solid doctrinal teaching and solid theology that they were established under. So we're going to see John combating some of that, some explicitly and then some implicitly within this letter. But that's just a little bit of background for us. We're coming to 1 John chapter 1, 1 through 4. I'm going to read those verses for us, and then we'll take that apart together. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ." We are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. First point this morning is this word of life can be personally experienced. This word of life can be personally experienced. So verse 1 again, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. How many of you have ever seen a drag race on TV or maybe been there in person? Okay, so you watch those drag racers going down a track. One of the categories is top fuel. That's just the category. And they're the fastest sanctioned category of drag racers. They're going up to 335 miles per hour. They have a course that they're running down that is 1,000 feet, and they're finishing that course in 3.26 seconds. That is incredibly fast. You don't really get a good sense of it just watching it on TV. You have to be there in person to really get a good sense of how fast they take off. John's doing something kind of similar here when we start this letter. He's just starting straight out of the starting blocks and just boom, he's gone. He hits solid doctrine right from the very first couple of words. Just boom, he's out of there. No pleasantries, no welcome, no, hey, how are you doing? Here's, here's how I'm doing. None of that, no greeting, just boom, solid teaching right from the very start. He just gets right at it. So he's going. He starts with this idea of doctrine. That's the very first thing that he starts with. He starts with solid doctrine and solid theology, just right from the very start. And we're going to see as we work through this that we have to understand right doctrine leads to right worship and experience. We have to get this right. We have to start with a right doctrine and a right theology, because that's going to lead to right worship and right experience. We have to know who God is to be able to worship Him properly. We have to know who God is to then be able to live out that life that He's placed within us properly. But the church in many places today, and a lot of our Christian music that we listen to today, gets this turned around the other way. There's this movement right now going on, that if we get our worship right, we get our experience right, that'll lead us to a right doctrine of who God is. That's, that's how that feels. That's how that sounds often. 
through the music that we listen to sometimes on the radio or within certain churches. They want to get that worship right, get the experience right, and then we can experience God right. But that's the other way around. If we try to put our own experience and our own worship and we make it about ourselves, how I feel about God, how I feel about worshiping, how I want to express how I feel about Him, then we're going to have a doctrine and a theology that's very much reflecting on who we are rather than who God is. So we can't get this out of order. We have to start with right doctrine, right theology, to then know how to be able to worship God properly and be able to do that whether we feel good about it or not, whether we're having a good experience with it or not. Because Job was able to worship God. Job was able to worship Him in the middle of incredibly difficult circumstances because he had a right understanding of who God was. Now, he didn't have it perfect. If you read the book of Job, you see that. But he had a right understanding to start with of who God is. And whether he was in the middle of great experiences, great circumstances, or he's in the middle of great loss, he could still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He could worship him because he had a right start, right doctrine, right theology, right worship, right experience. Doctrine is extremely important, even if it started to fall out of favor within the American church. Right doctrine and right theology are absolutely essential for us. Paul feels that way, and he talks to Timothy and to Titus, these young pastors just getting started. He talks to them about holding on to that solid doctrine, that right teaching. And we don't have a chance to read all of these verses that are there, but that can be your homework for this morning. So look at these verses in their greater context. But what Paul is doing is he's talking to Timothy and to Titus, is he's telling them, hold on to solid teaching, solid doctrine. 2 Timothy 1.13 says, hold on to what you saw in me. He's writing to Timothy, hold on to what you saw in me, that solid teaching, this right doctrine, hold on to it. In Titus 1.9 and 2.1, he's saying these guys that you're going to get established in these churches as elders... They have to be able to hold on to solid, strong doctrine and to be able to refute those who don't hold on to solid doctrine. And he says to Titus, you yourself, make sure you hold on to this teaching. And this is then how you conduct yourself in the church as you're holding on to it. Because he says in 2 Timothy 4.3, there's a time coming when people won't hold on to solid teaching, but they're going to heap up for themselves teachers that are just going to teach whatever their itching ears want to hear. They don't hold on to that solid teaching. He says in 1 Timothy 6.3 that there's a time coming when there are going to be teachers who will come teach doctrine for their own gain. It's not solid teaching. It's not true solid doctrine, a true theology, but they're just seeing what they can gain as a result of it. So Paul says you have to be so, so careful in 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep careful watch on yourself. Watch that you hold on to this solid doctrine because you're protecting both yourself and those that are listening to you. So you can read those verses in their greater context. Paul sees this as essential, solid doctrine. John sees this as essential, this solid doctrine, that he starts right from the gun, just straight out in solid teaching. So what are those things that he's teaching us, even just within these first couple of words of First John? First words are, this was from the beginning, that which, that which was from the beginning. So that which was from the beginning. We see later on in this letter, even in this, these verses, this is Jesus he's talking about. That which was from the beginning, the word of life. 
that which was from the beginning is Jesus. It's not, new, not a new concept. He's not just getting started. It's not something that's just getting started in the church. It has been. Jesus always was and always will be, and we see him saying the same thing in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He always has been. Jesus has always been a part of God's plan. Jesus has always been. This is eternality of Jesus. That's a Christian doctrine that we have to hold on to. Jesus wasn't a created being. Jesus did not come to be. He always has been. He always will be. He was an absolutely essential part of creation right from the very start. That's an important Christian doctrine that not all Uh, faiths not all Christian churches hold to, but we have to hold to that. Jesus always has been and always will be. He's from the beginning. That'll remind us, too, of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus was there. Jesus was part of that. What's implied in that, then, not only is God, the Lord Jesus, eternal, but then we see later on, he talks about how he was with the Father, and John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So now we start to see the Trinity being taught, implied here. He was with God, and He was God. So now we have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, working together. That's an essential Christian doctrine. You can't get away from that. That's an essential truth of our faith that you have to hold on to. He's the second person of the Trinity. That's how we see him functioning, as the second person of the Trinity. Not second in importance, not second in creation, because he always has been and always will be, but we see his role and his function within the Trinity, within the Godhead. One God, three personalities that we see, three functions that they serve. We have God the Father, then we have God the Son, who is submitting his will to the Father. He's the Word of God made flesh, the Word uh, and the Word dwelt among us. He became flesh that we might see him and know him. And he submits to the will of the Father, but he's fully and completely the exact image of who God is. You see that in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. He's the perfect expression of the character and nature, perfect imprint of who God is. But he says, as he's here on earth, he says, I do as the Father tells me to. I I speak what the Father tells me to speak. I uh, want to do His will, not my will. He says, your will, Father, not mine, as He's there in the garden. So we see Him functioning as a second person of the Trinity, but then we also have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit uh, undergirding all of that, holding it up, glorifying Jesus, and the one who's then there is our helper. He comes to help us, and we're going to see Him show up later, too, for the disciples. But we have two very important doctrinal truths right here from the start. We have the doctrine of the eternality of Jesus, and we have the doctrine of the Trinity. Right from the start, two very solid things that we have to hold on to as believers. But the next thing that we can hold on to that's essential for our faith is that this word of life, this Jesus, this God, he can be known. He can be known personally. We can know him. He's not some far-off being that we can't relate to. He's not some far-off being that got things started and is just kind of spinning and he's kind of stepped back watching to see what happens. We can know him personally. He's here for us to know him and to love him and for us to be loved by him. But agnosticism, 
I'm sure you've heard that term. Maybe you know some people who would call themselves agnostics. They believe there is a God out there somewhere, but you can't know him, especially not in any kind of personal sense. There have been some very famous agnostics over the years, people who are brilliant men, brilliant women, who know that God must exist, but you can't know him. He's certainly not at work. Sir David Attenborough is one of those men. We love watching his nature documentaries. He's just kind of that iconic voice of a nature documentary. Love watching those. He does a good job. But here's what he said about God. He said, I find it far more awesome, wonderful, that creation, our appearance in the world, should be the culmination or at least one of the latest products of 3,000 million years of organic evolution than a kind of country trick, taking a rib out of a man's side in a trance. How sad is that, that somebody so brilliant, somebody so uh, enamored by the creation, just sees the, the incredible creation that's been made, but can't attribute God as the creator. They can't get past their own brilliant mind to see that God did this. God made this. He can be known personally. And he was known personally, was experienced John and the other disciples did see him. They did walk alongside him. So how was he known? How was he experienced? Here's what John says. He says, that which we have heard, which you've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, that which we have heard. They walked with Jesus. They got to hear his teaching, actually physically present there, hearing him speak, hearing his words hearing what he shared with everyone else, and then they had that personal time with Jesus where he often explained things to them that wasn't explained to the crowd. They heard Jesus. They had the Word of God shared with them from the Word of God. What an awesome experience for them. They were actually physically there to hear him, but they were also physically there to be able to see him, that which we have seen. They walked with Jesus. They saw him every day, they saw what he was like when all the crowds were there. They saw what he was like when none of the crowds were there. He saw when all 12 were there. They also saw when it was just the three that were kind of uh, Peter, James, and John being those three extra special disciples that walked with Jesus. He was always the same, though. Whether everyone was there or not, Jesus was never out of character. He was never different than how he presented himself. He was always Jesus. We're not always that way. Sometimes we act one way in one setting and a different way in a different setting. We go back and forth sometimes. Jesus was always just exactly who he said he was. He was always the same, and he always is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. They saw Jesus. They heard him. Seeing is that next step up from hearing. Not only did I hear Jesus, I saw Jesus. But then he says, which we have looked upon and touched and the first words that came to my mind as I was thinking through, we've looked upon and touched, is that idea of the disciples coming back after having first seen Jesus after the resurrection, saying, we've seen the Lord, seen Jesus. But Matthew Henry points out that there's an idea here of we've seen Jesus, which we've looked upon, which is more an idea more of perceived, not just seen with our eyes, but they've seen Jesus. They see him for who he is. They see his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son. At the transfiguration, they see Jesus in his glory. Peter, James, and John are there, and they see Jesus. They don't just see him. 
but they see him for who he is. They perceive there's so much more to him than just what is seen physically, more than they just hear, but they've also touched him. They've been able to see and touch and feel those nail scars in his hands and in his side. They have truly experienced Jesus, a real, authentic experience, and their lives were totally, completely, irrevocably changed for having known Jesus. They knew him, they experienced him, and it says concerning the word of life. So this phrase, concerning the word of life, all this time we've been talking about the word of life, and in the beginning, uh, it says that which was from the beginning. We've been assuming it's Jesus. We've just been assuming it's Jesus, but this helps us to know that this is just exactly who we're talking about. This is Jesus that's being talked about here. John 1.1 and John 1.14 help us to see that that's who he's talking about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So why the Word? Why does John call him the Word? One person, uh, one writer says that Jesus is the Word of God in action. John Piper says it this way. John calls Jesus the Word because he's come to see the words of Jesus as the truth of God and the person of Jesus as the truth of God in such a unified way that Jesus himself in his coming and working and teaching and dying and rising was the final and decisive message of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us we might be able to personally experience that word of life because he became flesh and dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's absolutely incredible. We can personally experience Jesus Christ. John did, and his life was irrevocably changed because of Jesus Christ. We can personally experience Jesus and our lives can be irrevocably changed by him. And not only should we know him personally, we ought to also then be sharing him personally. So we ought to be personally shared. Let's read verse 2. The life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. This life ought to be personally shared so a couple of weeks ago, we had the chance to go to a Sea Dogs game. So it was Jenny and the girls and I, and then my dad and my brother and his family. They were up from North Carolina, and we all wanted to go to a Sea Dogs game. So we got to sit there in that stadium. And if you've ever been there, you know that the hospital, Main Med, looks right over the stadium. And as we're walking in, the Life Flight helicopter came and landed on that, that helicopter pad, and the girls were just blown away. They loved it. It was awesome seeing that helicopter come in. They were super excited. So we walk in and sit down, and we get a good view of the field and a good view of the helicopter pad. And partway through the game, that helicopter gets ready to take off again. And Ada's mind was just blown. She was so excited watching that helicopter get ready to take off. And she just had to share it with somebody. She was telling us. She was telling everybody up and down the row. And there's this little boy in front of us. And she was practically tackling this kid to tell him just how excited she was about that helicopter and how excited he should be about that helicopter. I'm not quite sure how the mom was feeling about how excited she was. But she was just, it was the coolest thing that had happened to her in her whole entire life. How excited do we get about sharing Jesus? How excited do we get 
about sharing the word of life. John was excited about it. The disciples were excited about it. And we're going to see just how excited they were about it and what they did about it. They were excited to share that truth. The life was made manifest. They had to share that truth, that life. That life was made manifest. The life is Jesus. We see Jesus in John 14, 6 saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life was made manifest. We could see him. He is the life. He's eternal, as we saw earlier, as we talked through earlier. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He always has been. He always will be. It's not a new life, but now it's visible to us. Manifest means to be made visible. Now we can see it. John could see it. He could interact with that life. This life that had been promised from all the way back in the garden, all the way back in Genesis, saying that there's going to be a Savior who's going to come. And then through Abraham and through all the prophets, all the way leading up, this promise that this life was going to come, now he's made manifest. We can see him. We can interact with him. John could see him and hear him and touch him and perceive who Jesus was. He's made manifest. You can see him. He says we've seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. This was and is the reality that John lived. He had seen it. He'd experienced it. His life was irrevocably changed because of the interactions, the experiences that he'd had with Jesus. And he just had to share it. He had to testify to it. He was driven to do so. It may be as he was teaching, because here we are, it's somewhere around 80, 90, so so many years removed from when Jesus was on earth. Maybe as he's teaching and he's sharing, people will come to him and say, well, how do you know Jesus said that? How do you know? Were you even there? How do you know he said those words and did those things? And John could say, I was there. I saw it. I heard him. And here's what I know to be true. He testified to it, shared his testimony. He said, this is what I have seen. This is what I know. But he also could say, here's what I know to be true. We think about testifying and we think about court. When you go to court to testify about something, you're brought there to say, here's what I saw. Here's what I heard. Here's what I believe to be true. To the best of my ability, this is what I saw. This is what I heard. This is what I experienced. Other people saw it too. They also are going to give their testimony, but you saw it from your perspective. Here's how you saw it. And we give our testimony. We talk about giving our testimony. Here's how I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. I was this old. I was in this place. I was with these people, and I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. We give our testimony. That's personal to us. John's sharing his testimony. He's testifying, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, here's how I feel about this. Here's how I experience Jesus. He goes that next step further and puts a greater weight on not just what he says, I am testifying, I'm sharing, here's what I feel, but now I'm proclaiming to you. I'm declaring to you, this is the truth about who God is. Proclaim is the word there that's in the ESV, but declare might be a better word. It carries a little bit more weight of here's the truth of what is. Whether you want to believe it or not, this is how God has revealed himself to us, and I declare this truth to you. I've experienced him. I've seen him, John says. 
But here's the truth of who God says he is. He says, I declare to you the eternal life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. It declares the truth. It says, which the fathers made manifest to us. Again, Jesus was with the Father. He always has been. He always will be. But now we can see him. Now we can know him. Now we can experience him. And we might, trans- might be transformed by him, by his word. We have his word. But when we've trusted in Christ as our Savior, we also have the Word. We have Jesus, and we can be transformed by Him. And there's a finality in those words as He declares this to us, that the Father's made manifest to us, that we might know Him. We can accept that truth for ourselves. He's made Him visible to us, that we might know Him, and then be able to then share that, personally experience that truth, but then personally share that truth. John couldn't hold that back. John had to personally share that reality of who Jesus is, that word of life, share that with people. That's why he wrote the Gospel of John at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. He says, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. He couldn't hold that back. He had to share that truth. And then he writes 1 John as a result of that. Because you have believed, here's how you can know you have eternal life. You've trusted in him. His life was irrevocably changed because of Jesus, and then he wanted to see others changed as well. How excited do we get about sharing our faith with believers, unbelievers? How excited do we get to share the truth that we have the word of life in our hearts, within us, but then the word of life at our fingertips How quick are we to be able to go share the gospel with a stranger, somebody we don't know? Because to be honest, that's actually the easiest aspect of evangelism is to share your faith with somebody you don't know because you can go share the good news of Jesus with them and say, here's what I know. Here's what I've experienced. Here's how Jesus touched me and changed me. And here's the truth of what his word says. And you can share that with them and they can look at you and say, that's nonsense and move on with their life. And you don't see them ever again and they don't ever see you again but you've shared your faith. How excited are you to go share that truth with somebody you don't know? Even harder still is are you excited enough about what Jesus has done, who he is, to share your faith with somebody you know really well or a family member? That's even harder. You have the word of life within you. Are you excited about it enough to go share that with somebody you know very well? I can think of somebody right now that I see almost every day. Don't always interact with them every day, but I see them. And we've talked a little bit about who Jesus is, but maybe not to the fullest extent that I think we should. I don't know where he stands in his relationship with Jesus Christ. He goes to church, but I don't know where he stands in his relationship with Jesus Christ. Am I excited enough about Jesus to go share my faith with someone? or a family member, even harder still, because hopefully you will see them again over and over and over again. But you have the words of life. You've personally experienced that. Now you need to personally share that with somebody. And when you're able to personally share that with somebody, then they also can personally have fellowship with Jesus Christ and with you as a fellow believer. So we ought to be personally experiencing it, personally sharing it, but then we have a chance to have the personal fellowship. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. 
That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Every morning, you get up, you get out of bed, and you start your day. Every single morning, you get up and you start moving on with life, relying on this one absolutely essential thing. It's absolutely essential to life here on earth. You get up, you get ready to go to work, you get ready to go to school, get ready to go to the beach, whatever you're going to do. You get up and you don't even think about this thing. You just get up and do it. Because you're expecting, you have faith, that it's going to be the same today as it was yesterday, and it's going to be the same tomorrow as it is today, and it always has been and always will be just exactly the same. You don't think about it. You just move on with your day and totally trust that gravity is going to continue to work. You don't even think about it. You just know that gravity is going to be the same. Gravity will always be. But you can't see gravity. I can't pick up gravity and look at that and say, well, look at that. That's beautiful. I can't smell that. I can't hear that. I can't interact with gravity apart from the fact that I see the effects of what it does to everything else around me. I take it in faith that it's there, that it's continuing to do just exactly what it's supposed to do. But I just, I just trust by faith. There's a lot of aspects of believing in the Lord that are the same way. I can't always see him. I can't see him with my eyes. John did. John could hear him. John could see him. John could experience him, but I can't now. He's not here physically right now. I have to accept by faith what he said. I have to accept by faith that has John experienced that and then shared that with us, that that's how that was. I have to accept by faith So why is John writing this to us? Why is he writing all of this? He says that you might have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's why he's writing these verses, writing this letter to us, that we might have fellowship with one another and fellowship with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. We have unity with each other and with Christ. And he says that we may be one even as they are one. Let's read John 17, 20 through 23. We're just going to look at this real quick. Here's what Jesus says about us and about unity, about being one with him. Here's what he says in John 17, 20 through 23. Do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, I have loved them, even as you loved me. We have fellowship with each other because of the work of Jesus Christ. Pastor Mark talked last week about how we have unity. We have fellowship with each other, but we also have fellowship with Jesus Christ. Fellowship with each other, that's one thing. That's, that's hard. You know, we have to live with each other and interact with each other as believers. That can be hard in itself, but then it's just a mind-blowing thought to think that I have fellowship with Jesus Christ. I have fellowship with God the Father because of the work that he has done, both working in me and working through me. I have fellowship with him. 
I am one with him. I'm united with him. Paul talks about that, being united with Christ, as he's talking to the Corinthians. We're united with Christ. We are one with him. We have God the Father. We have God the Son. We're in fellowship with him, in fellowship with one another because of the work of Jesus Christ. We've personally experienced that. We personally get to experience that fellowship then that we have with each other. It doesn't matter our ethnicity. It doesn't matter our political leanings. It doesn't matter our gender. It doesn't matter our age. When we've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have fellowship with one another. When we've trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have fellowship with God the Father. We can have personal fellowship with Him. He says, you and me, or I and them, and you and me. We have Him in us, working within us. That's awesome. That's incredible. But here's the problem with that is I can't see him. I can't see him with my eyes. I can't touch Jesus anymore. He's not physically here that I can touch him and interact with him and hear him in the same way that John did. So how do I accept all of this? I have to accept it by faith. I have to accept it by faith. I get up and trust that gravity is going to work by faith. I have to trust that God's just exactly as he said he was, doing exactly what he said he would do by faith. And you know, Jesus prays for us. He knows that this is going to be the case, that we have to accept him by faith, that we're not going to always be able to see him and interact with him. He says this in John 20, 29, as he's talking to Thomas. Jesus has come back from the grave. He's risen. He's resurrected. Thomas hadn't yet seen him. The others had seen him, but Thomas wasn't there. So Jesus is then, he reveals himself to Thomas. Thomas puts his hands and his, the nail scars in his hands and in his side, and he says, my Lord and my God. And he says, do you now believe? Blessed are those who haven't seen me and yet have believed. That's us. We haven't seen him, but we've believed. Jesus also says, if you caught it in John 17, verse 20 and 21, here's what he says. I don't ask for these only. He's praying to God the Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's us. He's praying for us right there. We're not going to be able to see him physically. But Augustine said that we see him, and we touch him, and we interact with him spiritually. That's how we touch Jesus now. That's how we see Jesus now. We see him and hear him through his word. The word of God revealed in the word of God. We can personally experience him there in his word. But we do so by faith. And what's the end result of all of this then? What's the end result of that fellowship with one another and fellowship with Christ? Well, verse 4 says this, and we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete, that our joy may be complete. And there's two thoughts that we can pull out of this verse for us. One is that he says our joy. So John is writing. There's others then there with him. He says our joy. Their joy might be complete as this letter is written to these churches. As that letter goes out, there's great joy then in sharing who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And to know then that this letter has gone out to these churches and the lives of those who read this letter might know God greater, might know that fellowship with God in a greater, uh, more wonderful way 
there's great joy in that. Paul talks, as he's writing to those in Philippi, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, uh, be of complete my joy by being of the same mind. So Philippians 2, 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. There's great joy in knowing that I have passed on this truth. Here's what God has done in me. Here's what God has done through me. I'm passing this on to you that you might know God in a greater way and to know that that's received and lives are changed and the lives of those who read that walk closer with the Lord and look and act and sound and are more like Jesus. There's great joy in that. So that's how we can understand it to be our joy. They receive the joy of knowing that God's glorified through that letter. But for you and I reading this, we also can experience that same kind of joy. Because another way to translate that word, rather than our joy, it might be your joy. So we can understand that too for ourselves, is that there's great joy in knowing we have a right fellowship with Jesus Christ. There's great joy in knowing that I stand before the Father bearing the righteousness of Christ. I have fellowship with him as a joint heir with Christ. I wear his righteousness. He sees me, and I'm a child of God. He sees you, and if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you're his child. There's great joy in knowing that you have a right relationship with God. So whether we understand this, and I believe that the the best way to understand it is John saying our joy. There's great joy that they received in knowing that letter was received well. But we can also know for ourselves, we have great joy in Jesus. We have great joy in that fellowship that we have with him. We can experience him personally. I got way behind in my slides. We can personally experience Jesus and know that great joy. Be irrevocably changed because of the life of Christ. Changed forever because of how we've experienced him. Both experienced him personally in our testimony, but experienced him too in how he's revealed himself to us in his word, the word of God known through the word of God, personally experienced, but then personally shared. You can't hold that back. If you've experienced Jesus, you need to then share that with somebody. You ought to be driven to do so, and I hope right now you're thinking of somebody that you could share Jesus with. You've experienced him personally. Personally share him, and then we have that personal fellowship with him and experience that lasting joy that comes from being irrevocably changed by the life of Jesus Christ. The Word of God, the Word of God made flesh dwelling among us, allowing us to have that full and complete joy. What a great start to this letter in 1 John. Just the first couple of verses and boom, we're right out of the gun. It'll be fun then to work through the next couple of weeks with you as we go further in to see how further does John take us? How quickly do we jump into these solid doctrinal truths, this greater understanding as we experience Jesus and we live that out then, this word of life within us and the great joy that comes from that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, Jesus, giving him to us that we might know him personally. We might see him through your word. We might hear him through your word. We might know him as a result of you working through the writers of scripture. Father, I pray that we would take to heart what your word says, Lord, and we wouldn't be able to hold that back. We'd be able to then share who you are with somebody else. We've experienced that life. We've experienced that change. Pray then that that spills over into those that we interact through our day. 
whether that's somebody we know well or somebody we don't know very well at all. I thank you that you're in us. I think you don't leave us to figure this out on our own. You don't leave us to fight these battles and these daily struggles without your help, but you're in us, and we have fellowship with you. I thank you for the great joy then that comes from resting in that assurance that we're yours, that you're in us. Father, I pray you bless us as we go from this place. In Jesus' name.